Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. To me, bravery is, is back to that place that's never been wounded. Bravery is, is just that acknowledgement that there's something in you that no matter how dark or difficult things get or how intense life can feel sometimes, there is a part of you that no one's ever got to and no one's ever wounded. And I think that, keeping that in the back of your head, brings this level of bravery out. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Niall Breslin to the podcast. Niall is one of Ireland's most formidable and inspiring mental health advocates and public speakers. He is the lead singer and songwriter for The Wizards and was a coach on The Voice of Ireland. His award-winning mental health charity, A Lust for Life, teaches young people to be effective guardians of their own minds. He works with a diverse range of clients, including Apple, Google, international NGOs, and the European Parliament. They all host the Where Is My Mind and Wake Up, Wind Down podcasts, both of which are regularly in the UK and Ireland's top podcast charts. In this episode, I talked to Niall Breslin about mental health. During his early days as an entertainer and athlete, Niall has always tried to put his best foot forward, but behind this confident exterior, he was silently suffering. It was only after he came forward about his struggles that he sought the help he needed. Instead of avoiding negative emotions, Niall encourages us to face them bravely, either through therapy or mindfulness. We also touch on the topics of education, introspection, resilience, community, and empowerment. I really enjoyed this chat with Niall. I found him incredibly sensitive and really touching. There were definitely moments in this episode in which I teared up And I really like his message that we can find parts of ourselves that aren't wounded and that we should search for those parts of ourselves because we all have light within us. Really love that message. It really resonated with me and I know it'll resonate with you too. So without further ado, I bring you Niall Breslin. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. It's been fun uh, researching you. Oh God. (laughs) Jesus, that's always, when when you hear that, you go, oh no, it's a fear factor. (laughs) What does he know? (laughs) What does he know? Yeah, what does he know? That sounds like a threat, but I'm going to take it as not a non-threatening thing to say, but. Well, 
Yeah, that's, that's some people say that, but <laughs> we'll see how we get on. Well, you know, it's all it's all been an interesting journey for you. Oh yeah, totally. You uh, said somewhere the first fifteen years of your life you were struggling every day. Yeah, I suppose the context behind that would have been I always believed I had some form of kind of post traumatic stress kind of thing going on. I moved to Israel when I was thirteen and lived there with my dad, and there was a what is now called Operation Accountability, but we were in the middle of it. So it was my first realization that I'm not safe. But actually, when I really went into the therapeutic journey with my psychologist and therapist, it was really a physically abusive primary school. That was the impact. That's what kind of, I believe, had the kind of prevailing impact on my psychology throughout my life, because I learned to do what probably most people would have done. I just immediately cut myself off emotionally from the world. And it worked really well. But then, as I said, as I got older, it became quite destructive. And throughout the 90s in Ireland, you know, the only time I ever heard mental health mentioned was when Kirk Cobain died. And I asked my Christian brother teacher what happened, and he punched his desk and called him a coward. So, you know, a lot of my work is really not around the psychology of the individual, but I've become so interested in the kind of cultural, sociological elements of mental health and how, when I really look at it, how could many of us be any other way? And the impact culture has and society has on the individual is something I'm immensely interested in because it had a profound impact on me. Are you an introvert? Have you thought about that? You see, it's kind of strange. I'm, I know, I know. I'm a front man in a band. <laughs> you know, people say, how could you be that? I says, because I was weirdly enough completely comfortable on stage and people ask me why because most musicians will tell you it's it's almost an alter ego when you go on stage it, it's almost a different form of reality that you're taking and for me it was a brilliant place to be because i wasn't yeah. myself and that was a, a an escape that i really liked and i loved music and i loved mm. the intensity and the noise and the aggression and the collectiveness of being in a band when there's four or five people and you're like looking at everyone going, we all have a part to play here. And if anyone messes up and I love that. So in terms of an introvert, socially, I think I am socially. I'm particularly, I can be particularly awkward <laughs> at can. times, uh, but I, de yeah, I don't think I'm, I think once yeah. I know the person I'm, I'm incredibly good and I, I love, I'm, I'm, I love conversations yeah. and I love, love chats. I, I can be an introvert. I do like my own company. That's probably a good way of putting it. Mm. You know, probably too much. Yeah, well, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I think to the point, especially the careers that I went on, television, music, the entire part of my job mm. was to care what the public thought of us. Which, when I look over my life, absolutely was mm. the single worst career I could have took. Because I know. That's so cool. That's so cool. I did The Voice here in Ireland. I was one of the coaches in The Voice. And it was five years. It was cool. And TV was great. But hand on my heart, if I was making a very clear decision with full clarity, I wouldn't have done it again because mm. everything changed. There was a sense of ownership over you. And at that point, I had not mm. a clue what was going on in my head. 
I didn't know what my value system was. I didn't know what I stood for. I felt rudderless. And you're giving yourself to other people to decide. And that wasn't good. That's when things went pretty chaotic for me um, mentally. Yeah, you had a panic attack, right? Yeah, I did. I I'd, I'd, I'd quite a lot of them over the years. I, I had my first panic attack when I was 13 or 14. And I was sent into hospital. Well, I was sent to a doctor because I told my mother I had asthma because I, I, I just wasn't catching my breath. I was fundamentally fighting for breath most evenings. And the doctor told me it was puberty. And I know for a fact that doctor knew it wasn't. I knew that was me kind of looking for somebody to give me some kind of answer to why I was suffocating at night. And I carried that on because what in Ireland, what's really interesting from a cultural point of view and I spend a lot of my time in America and I work with a lot of people in America and I love the perception that they may have of Ireland and Irish people. But really, when you get into our history and into who we are, we've a very difficult, challenging, dark past. And in the reason I bring that up is, you know, when it comes to mental health, shame was the prevailing wind in Ireland and the Catholic Church weaponized shame and gave us the gun and that's what happened and we used it on each other so whether if it wasn't something like you know sex outside marriage where we put women and children in prisons essentially it was we were putting people in institutions and what people don't realize in ireland which is really interesting from a psychology point of view by 1950 ireland had the highest level of people in course of confinement and psychiatric institutions in the world and the running joke, of course, is that obviously Irish people were just more more mental illness in Ireland. But there's no evidence to show that was the case whatsoever. We loved putting people in institutions. And so for me in the 90s, this prevailing idea of institutionalization was constantly in my head because there was a hospital in Mullingar, where I'm from, called St. Lomond's. And the running joke in my town was like, you know, your dad's in St. Omens or your mum's in St. Omens. And it was a kind of a joke. And I really believed that if I actually told the truth, that's where I would end up. So that type of stuff led me on this kind of silent 15 years of holding on. And I was having panic attacks all the time. And I had a, 10 minutes before the biggest live show of The Voice, my first live show, I had a really pretty brutal one. And I had to do the rest of the show, 90 minutes. And I was physically shaking throughout that whole 90 minutes. And that was the kind of rock bottom. That was the the moment of change or the catalyst or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you got through it. You, you went through the 90 minutes. How did you do it? Because what I always say to people in my work is that people who struggle with their mental health are tougher than everybody else. And you might see the imagery in the paper where it shows you a young kid in a dark room with their hands over their heads. That is not the mental health I know. The toughest people in the world that I've met are people who've struggled with their mind because they have to be. They've no other choice. And I think it's I got through it because I was strong. And John O'Donoghue is an Irish poet and philosopher who has inspired most of my work. He's actually an incredible man. He passed away recently. And he said, there's a place within all of us that's never been wounded. And I think it's one of the best statements. I think you, in your work, in my work. Oh, I love that. Yes, I love that. I'm writing that down. There's somewhere in us. And I suppose 
that's the kind of core for me of what mindfulness hopefully teaches is how can we find or access that place. And the prime example I use is the pandemic. Like we're, you know, three, four years ago, if I told everybody listening to this, that this is what they're going to have to deal with, they won't see their parents or family or their loved ones. They'll be restricted with their movements, all this kind of stuff. Most of us would have said, nope, couldn't do that. But you did do that. And the reason I'm saying that is maybe we're all a little tougher than we think we are. And it's that reminder of the place that's never been wounded that I go back to. That's the place that got me out of that hole before that live show and got me through the 90 minutes. Also a really good professional presenter, Catherine Thomas. I looked at her and I just nodded and I said, don't ask me anything. I'm literally just in survival mode here. Mm. And that was it. I got through it. And that very evening, I changed the trajectory of my life. I, I made a few decisions and I've never looked back. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, are you familiar with like Dan Harris? Yes, of course. I, I actually yeah. interviewed Dan on the podcast. Wonderful. On your on your exemplary podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a, a similar experience. On on TV, which was even worse. Yeah. But you had a panic attack to, before The Voice. You're supposed to go on The Voice, and then you still went on. Is there footage of you from that day? Um, you were, like, sweating. You were, like, you looked highly uncomfortable. The really str- strange thing, my panic attacks were very physical, are, are very mm-hmm. physical. They're, and I hate to be graphic about it, but I think... I think we're in safe hands here and people listening Definitely. to this podcast understand that we're, we're only trying to help by having these conversations. But mm-hmm. I, I was vomiting. I couldn't breathe and I was vomiting and I had scrape marks on my neck from trying to pull my shirt. But the really interesting thing with TV is like you go and do your rehearsal and you're wearing a certain, you're wearing clothes and your producer and your director goes, right, they work on screen. That's grand. Thumbs up, you can wear that tonight. So I arrive out on life with a completely different shirt on. And the director's going like, what's going on here? Why is he wearing a different shirt? And I couldn't explain to him. I'd, I'd vomit on the other one, I'm sorry. But to me, there was an incredible power. The difficulty was I had to also advise and give feedback to singers. So what I did, you see, I learned coping strategies over the years. But what I knew purely from my anxiety. It was when my head is, I, I call it the mind riot. When my head goes on a mind riot, I need to get out of it. So I need to get out of my head and get into my body. And I just remember putting my two, my two hands on, this, on the chair and really feeling my feet in the floor. And it was enough to ground me and get me through. But I also took beta blockers just to get through it. And it changed how I look. I wasn't frightened of live TV. I was frightened of looking vulnerable on live TV because that was, I know, 10 years ago. Yeah. What would have happened? What would have been said? How would have the public reacted to it? Because it's very hard to explain to people that you're having a panic attack because it looks different for everybody. Mm. Um, but I did get through it. And that night I made a decision to tell everybody in my life that this was something I had been coping with on my own. And I told friends, I told family, I, I then made a decision, which was a huge one to make because I wrote in a piece of paper that I was going to lose my job and I'd have to leave the country. But that's what anxiety does. It makes the impossible possible. And this is what I said, I'm, leaving, I'm gone, but it's worth it. So I decided to tell the public. And 
that came out of discussion I had with my mother. And she said, what would have been different for the 15-year-old you if somebody had said something in the 90s about this? I said, everything would have been different. I thought I was possessed by the devil, which was a viable option in the 90s in Ireland. She said, speak to the 15-year-old you. That's what you do here. And then I, I came out publicly. It was the biggest TV show in the country. And I came out and I expected to be thrown under a bus and I didn't receive anything but empathy. And that made me realize that maybe we are ready to kind of move and start addressing these things. Oh, this is really powerful. Well, yeah, there's something um, really powerful about you, your energy. I've met a lot of people in my life. <laughs> there's a lot of depth to you. It's, you're, very, you're a very complex figure, I can tell. I can tell there's a lot going on. There is. There's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. There is. It's like zipping and zapping and there's contradictions. I can feel yeah. and see it all. Mm. It's, um, <laughs> it's fascinating. Welcome to my mind, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Well, I get it. I do get it. I can resonate <laughs> for what it's worth. Good, good. It's always good to meet people who can... <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely uh, feel a kindred spirit. But look, I mean, it's always a double-edged sword because the people that are complex like that tend to be able to make the most beautiful art. They tend to be the people that just resonate with the most amount of people mm. on the planet. There's something uh, much more beautiful about that than the, the quote, nice person, you know, like the just nice person, the polite, the, the person who d never shows any negative emotions, or at least they, you know, they don't show it to others, right? They're always people pleasing, et cetera, et cetera. Those people are kind of boring, mm. <laughs> right? I, yeah. I've always done my work strange maybe it's a personal thing even my phd is, is is i've always had an attraction to darkness yeah yeah i hear you <laughs> i suppose you doing what you do it's 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 a huge but i, I struggle yeah with the messaging we are now seeing because like i look at things like the wellness industry and i think they're generally quite positive but i also look and go hold on a sec guys there's an airbrushing out here where we mm. got to be careful because it just becomes another form of silence like to me, the most important emotions in the world are the negative ones, the core ones. They they teach you so much about yourself. And if you look at music or any form of art, Ed, back to John Donahue, he has this quote and he says, music is what language would love to be. I just like this guy is just golden coming out with these things. Because often what music becomes for the artist is a way of communicating something that no one will listen to in words or will judge them for it in words. So it's their form of communication. And it's generally quite authentic. And I think that's what audiences, when you look at the classic albums, like the really, like the album that has always had this profound impact in my life was Tom Waits' Closing Time. Mm. When you listen to it, just it, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like a lad who's not been able to say this to his friends, mm. but he's able to play it on the piano. And mm. I think that to me is, is something that I've used over my life, whether it's poetry whether it's spoken word, whether it's music, any form of that is something I've used and it's been immensely therapeutic. And that's why, to me, music therapy is becoming this very pervasive form of support yeah. and ally for people who might struggle with other forms of therapy. I love music therapy. Mm, so do I. Yeah, abs absolutely. I think relevant is a quote that you said once. You said, you can run, but you can't outrun. I think that is in line with this idea of that experiential avoidance is not the answer. Yeah, I think 
Louise, my partner, says it's slightly, you know, it's a bit more dramatic, but she says avoidance is the root of all disorder. Mm, and it's true. I, I think about it. I used to get frustrated with that because, so for example, so avoidance is quite nuanced, I think. So I had two types of avoidance, pretending it didn't happen or pretending I wasn't the way I was. But the other form that I thought was a form of escapism was I used to obsessively exercise. And I used to think that that was a healthy way. And because exercise is a healthy thing to do when generally good for you, you kind of believe that this is, so I would pick more difficult challenges. And what I was doing was I was picking challenges that gave me zero time to think, gave me zero time to, to rest, because that's when I used to get up, like that's when things would go wrong for me. So I pick bigger things and I believe I would always believe that my happiness lay in achievement. So I would I would pick bigger goals and go harder and harder. And I get more and more disappointed when that feeling of, right, this is fixed now, didn't come. And it was in therapy. I had an amazing therapist. I had a few, but it was actually in schema therapy where everything shifted in me. And what shifted was, and my therapist had, and I'm not giving anything away of my therapeutic journey. I speak openly about it was very challenged by me because I was very good at over intellectualizing what they were saying. And I was shifting them from one thing to the next, but that therapist got me to feel and everything shifted. Like I moved from that cerebral headspace and for 20 years I've avoided going into that feeling space. And when it happened, you literally fall apart and you're contained by a good therapist and then you're rebuilt or you're, you know, but I do think in terms of therapy, it's often sold as this. I look at the ads for it and it's like, it's this pretty thing. And I'm like, it's not pretty. It, for me, it wasn't pretty. It was a very difficult, challenging experience, but it worked. It was very powerful yeah. for me. And uh, Dabrowski, the Polish psychiatrist, called it positive disintegration. Sounds like that's what you went through. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, There's a moment, I think, for most people. I think that's why within psychology and in therapy, I'm also doing my best to normalize it for people who said, I've gone to it, I didn't work for me, or I did a session. You need to be prepared to show up. You need to come. You have to come into the room or in wherever you go for your therapy. You have to show up. That is the thing. And I think some people aren't either ready to do that or not willing to do that. And you have to, yeah. you have to meet them halfway. And that's the, the thing I, need, I I wanted more than anything in the world. I wanted to not feel the way I was feeling. So mm. I was willing to do whatever it took. And it actually was a GP. It was a GP that, like a physician that put me on that path. You know, he didn't immediately go, right, we're going to, we're going to drug you up here. And I was on medication for a long, long time. But, you know, he was going, no, I think there's something else here that you need to look at. So he set me on a different path. So interesting. And, and I, I, I can already see this episode being so valuable to so many people. When you feel that uh, bubbling up, like it could come on, I can just speak from my own personal experience of having panic attacks when I was much younger. Your head kind of fucks with you. Mm. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Like you think to yourself, oh, that would be bad if I had a full on panic attack right now. Mm. And then you think, wait, what's this is just how my head would go. And then I would think, well, what's stopping me from having a full panic there's, there's no restraints on my head right now. I could easily have one. And then it would start spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. And then my heart beats. And I'm like, wait a minute. I am having a... 
I don't know if you can resonate with that way of thinking at all, but that's how it was for me. And I would be, and the more public I was, the more my, my head, it would, my head would fuck with me. My head would fuck with me is what was happening. I became so good at them. That was what I was like. I, I remember, and I'm sorry for, I suppose, like, as I said, this isn't about being graphic. It's about being supportive because anyone listening to this, who's had them, they're not pretty. And as my dad has always said, and it was actually quite a helpful thing to say to me, he said, a panic attack has never killed anyone. Mm. But every cell in your body thinks that that's exactly what's happening. But mm. I used to be able to hold conversations with my hand in my pocket. And I, I remember this like, really difficult thing that happened to me. I was in, I was playing rugby at the time, professionally, and I was speaking to my coach. I missed a breath and I could feel it. It just came on and my hand was in my pocket. And I, I tore the skin off my hand with my fingers mm. just to stop myself reacting. And I told him that I had vertigo. I was like, oh, I get vertigo sometimes. And he goes, oh, you should be talking to the doctor about this. And the worst part of this, this is where things start to become even, you know, you feel very alone with this because what happened then, I would take Xanax and I was terrified. I was being drug tested. <laughs> I was a professional athlete being drug tested after games mm. not every game but you could be and i know xanax is not a performance enhancing drug but you don't want your coach to find out that you have been taken xanax to mm. be able to deal to literally be able to get out of bed so i was always terrified of that but actually really interestingly on the podcast i, I played professional rugby for three years and i i, I kind of thought to myself that was the darkest time in my life i struggled with fairly acute and difficult depression during that period. And depression to me was, I've only ever had a really acute phase of it once, thank God. But it was, it was something that held this power over me because it was, to this day, I haven't been able to adequately dis- define it. I cannot define how it felt. The only line I could say, it was a complete quest for feeling, any type of feeling, any form of feeling, good or bad. But I asked my coach, Matt Williams, who very famous rugby coach on my podcast two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I was terrified. And I said to the, I said to him, what did you think was wrong with me when I played rugby? Mm. And he said, our coaching team thought you were an alcoholic and you didn't care. Oh, wow. And I fell apart. And I was, I, I cannot tell you how much respect I had for him, to be honest about it. But he said to me, I missed you. I will never miss another athlete again. He went away and he trained in it. And, so that type of stuff really focused me in my mission for life is that I need to start showing people a different side and a kind of a paradigm shift in conversation around what mental health actually is and how we can support people and how it doesn't have this ridiculous idea that like I had a pretty wonderful life of amazing mom and dad. I have amazing sisters. I've kind of, I come from the country in the middle of Ireland my dad was in the military. My mum was a music teacher. And the reason I think my head is the way it is, is because I cannot stop thinking and I cannot stop solving things. But do you know what the really interesting part of this, and I won't go on ages, but in therapy, what became very clear to me was I have this sometimes uncontrollable level of empathy for the people I love. I can contain it. I'm and what I'm, and how it manifests for me is I worry relentlessly for them. If they're going somewhere, relentless worry. 
it was probably born out of attachment as a child, but it was constantly worried about them constantly. Are they OK? Do they have enough money? Are they sleeping all right? And I would think about them all the time. And I remember my therapist going, that makes you a very good person. And I like I used to get angry with that. But that to me is the what you need to hear sometimes, because you feel like you, you it feels like you're going crazy sometimes. It feels. Yeah, yeah. But that is a label that you put on top of the experience. As you know, one of the great aspects of mindfulness, one of the great benefits is you can train yourself to just experience the concrete sensations without causing your own suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, have you changed your relationship to yourself through meditation? You know, I went on the journey of meditation I did my master's in mindfulness based interventions. I've committed Mm. the last six years of my life to it. It's part of my PhD. Psychosocial interventions. I teach young kids. I develop schools programs and books for young kids with mindfulness. But I have a different relationship with mindfulness than a lot of people may have. Mm. I really struggled with meditation because the biggest manifestation of my panic disorder or my panic attacks were my breath. I had a very negative relationship with my breath. So I had to change that. And then I started to realize, you know, it's not necessarily about the breath. I looked at other avenues into meditation and mindfulness. But what changed my relationship with myself was Buddhism. And Oh, wow. Interesting. You know, I, I was raised in a deeply, deeply conservative Catholic country. And that's still, you know, Catholicism in Ireland is pretty much over for an abundance of reasons. There was a a huge level of historical institutional abuse, uh, child abuse that, um, you know, the world around the world knows what happened in Ireland and things like the Magna Laundries. So there was a gargantuan abuse of power by the Catholic Church that has led to the Catholic Church all but being over. But there's still a relationship between church and state. So most of our schools are run by Catholic uh, churches. Uh, some of our hospitals are. So there's a huge conflict here. But mindfulness is, in some of the schools that I've gone into, they, they perceive mindfulness as a form of re- religion and Buddhism. So they're quite reluctant for you to go in and talk to young kids about what this actually is. But actually, I think, I know when John Kabat-Zinn brought, you know, mindfulness to the hospitals in Boston, he kept it secular. But I actually think it's crucial that we give people the Buddhist language around why mindfulness has such a prevailing power and potential power for people. I think taking it out, I can understand why people do that, but I think we're missing a beat if we do that because it's the language of Buddhism that makes mindfulness make sense for me. Um, So yeah, I teach, but many times I have to take that Buddhist element out of it, but I, I bring it in in other ways. Like, I, you know, I mean, the first noble truth of suffering being an inevitable part of existence, that was game changing for me. That line, suffering is part of life. It's not the only part of life. Absolutely. And actually, as soon as you accept that, ironically, you start suffering less. There's there's a, there's a change. There's a cessation of holding on to that, which is obviously the, the idea of aversion and attachment. Letting go of this stuff sometimes. But here's where it gets interesting for me is the reason mindfulness feels so challenging for people 
and why Buddhism is often removed from it, is because it goes against the entire economic and social models that now run the world. Neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is essentially the opposite for me of mindfulness. And it dictates most of the Western world. So there's this kind of interesting jarring going on between culture, sociology and psychology. And we're at this alliance. And it's the alliance and the intersection that I'm most interested in. But for me, mindfulness over anything, it was actually emotional focus therapy that I did with my therapist that got me to sit with that horrendous feeling of trauma that I had run from for so so long. And that trauma was, you know, there was a few of them there, but it was physically being badly beaten up by a teacher, having been hit across the face with, with a leather, like a leather, a piece of leather with plastic in the middle. That was the, that was the weapon of choice of the Christian brothers in Ireland. And they hit children with it every single day. So these are the realities of it. And I, I still remember those. I still remember that day when I looked at a Christian brother who was foaming at the mouth as he jumped with this leather and he was trying to hit my hand harder and harder and harder. What was my mm. crime? I ate crisps in class. Wow. Well, I probably would have gotten that for cursing on my podcast. Well, you know, you know what I mean? But that's, that's, <laughs> and then you start yeah. to realize, and I remember, wow, with mindfulness, I remember I, I was brought to that moment and my therapist was like, what, what would you like to say to him? And I was all being all kind of nice and going, oh, what happened to you that you had to do this to me? And my therapist goes, Niall, your anger feels very reasonable. And he says, what, what do I mean? He says, be angry. And it just exploded. Like it was, it was, it, uh, God help anybody who was in the, the room next to me. And ultimately what mindfulness started to teach me was to sit with that discomfort, understand it. Not always, not always, but when, if it came up to sit with that. But more than anything, it taught me the space that I take up in society and the space society takes up in me. It taught me how to diffuse myself from how I was thinking. It taught me how not to fire that second arrow of suffering that the Buddha talks about. The first arrow being the inevitable stuff mm-hmm. and the second arrow being the shame, the regret and the rumination. And this yeah. changed in me, along with more than anything, my community and actually building back up my relationships with the people I sever- severed because I wasn't well. Wow, that's really powerful stuff. I would only get to uh, mm-hmm. to masculinity, notions of masculinity. Have you felt the need to kind of reconceptualize or broaden what a what a man could be in our society? Masculinity, I think, for me, is a topic that... I have weirdly been obsessed by, for an abundance of reasons, Mm. I mean, culturally, we're at a very strange kind of point where we're using language consistently and constantly, like crisis, toxic masculinity, without actually exploring this and understanding and getting getting into the weeds with this conversation. The reality is men have problems. And men have to accept those first. I mean, we just got to look at things. I had Richard Reeves on who wrote of Boys and Men, an incredible book around what some of those problems are in terms of not just the suicide rates among young men, but even things like education and in home lives where fathers are becoming less and less, you know, there. And to me, we have to be able to have these discussions 
these are crucial discussions. This isn't a zero sum conversation. And I remember when I put up on my, I think LinkedIn, that I'm interviewing Richard Reeves about masculinity and a HR, HR leadership boss said, you shouldn't be talking about masculinity. And I went, hold on a sec, guys, where are we going here? Where does this end? We have to talk about this. We have problems and we have to address them. And it's our responsibility to address them. So we have to have conversations around them. Mm. And she then said something about, you know, I suppose you're going to bring up evolutionary psychology. I was like, guys, stop. Why is there always conflict? Why is there always conflict with this stuff? And it is because what we've done in the media is we've created the entire model, literally the entire model of how social media works. Its currency is division. It doesn't function without division. And the deeper that division, the better. It works. Their algorithms are designed to divide. And that is not me being kind of, that is just a fact. You can see it. So these important discussions are now being massively polarized. And the gray area, which is, you know, as a psychologist, where most of stuff happens is the gray area is now gone. Context, Mm. gone. Nuance gone, and we have this reductionist, serious sum mm. look at things like masculinity. I have friends, close friends of mine, who who died because they believed there was a certain part they had to play in society, or a certain role that they had to be mm. that they couldn't quite be. I was that person. I was grappling with that all my life. That I. It was the vulnerability thing for me. It was just this idea. I call it about the this. I had this line that I wrote in a, a poem about Kurt Cobain. And he said, let's not pass on that baton anymore from grandfather to father and those that came before. And it is. It's a baton that gets passed on. A father who's a certain way of life then passes that to his son and son. Pa- and I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. This isn't working for us. It's a different world, a different society, different culture. And it's not working too many of my friends are, are struggling because they believe there's a certain role they have to play in society. And that, to me, changed how I viewed masculinity. And I think the responsibility here is on, the me- on men to do this. I think it's up to us to have these conversations with our friends, with our brothers, with our fathers. But I think we have to, we have to remove, we have to remove the labels, the, the toxic masculinities. We have to do that. Yes, there's absolute apparent bastards out there selling absolute bullshit on social media and TikTok and saying horrific things. And kids are picking up on that. But if you keep telling young men that they're toxic, they will follow people who tell them otherwise. That is basic maths. That is basic human maths. So if you keep using this language, it will disempower, it will disenfranchise, and people will then follow and that is something we got to be careful with. And that's why you're Andrew Tate's and, you know, there's many other examples. You have this attraction for young men. That is not the answer. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, there's uh, multiple reasons why people like Andrew Tate are, are popular to young men. There's also kind of a, a drive for like power, status, money. You know, that um, he also gets people excited about and activates. It's not just the masculinity thing, but it's, you know, those kind of motives. What do you see as some of the, the major values 
that we should be having in our society today, especially among young men? Values to me are are probably at the beating heart of, of our emotional well-being and actually figuring out what our values are. Our values, not what we think our values should be. Don't Google your values. Don't look at them. Actually ask yourself, what does this make me feel like when I think about it? Yeah. And the types of values that I think we have to start promoting. And, you know, you can't tell people what their values are. But I think one value that I massively, massively feel is missing is community. Mm. Connection. Interaction. I think what we've done, and I'm back to this idea of, and I don't want to sound like, you know, a Marxist here, but when you look at neoliberalism and how it functions, it functions around individualism. That's so what happens in neoliberalism. And for those listening, well, what's, what the fuck does that mean? Neoliberalism is the economic kind of ideology that you, you essentially leave the market to dictate and solve all problems with very little government regulation. That's generally what neoliberalism why is that really destructive for values because it promotes as i said individualism i have friends that say to me that doesn't fit my brand ireland calls itself ireland incorporated can we see where we're going here so what's happening is we're pushing this individualistic society at a time when we need to figure out how to come together because we have existential threats that we need to solve and ironically the very thing that's dividing us the most is the very thing that said it was going to bring us together with social media. So for me, the thing I'm most passionate about is collectivism. How do we bring communities back together? How do we bring ways of connecting? And we also know from a mental health perspective, the, the true impact that communities can have. So that to me is something like if I go on TikTok now, when I'm finished here within it's what well, it's six o'clock nearly in a cold, wet Irish evening. I'll go down for a cup of tea and some food and by seven o'clock I'll have some guy on TikTok telling me that I'm I'm not good enough if I'm not doing something now. I'm not a good enough entrepreneur. I'm not good enough in the gym. I'm not good enough at golf. I'm not good enough at this. All right. This is the stuff that I think is making us feel like we're just not quite good enough all the time. And that is driven by this neoliberal agenda, I think. And my value is each day, how do I find a way to integrate myself more and more into my community? Mm. And that's just one value. You've other things like loyalty and honesty and all these other things that come off this, but you cannot practice values unless you have a community to practice them with. You cannot practice values on Twitter. Putting a hashtag in front of a word doesn't make you that thing. Be kind. That's not how it works. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. You can't just put hashtags in and say, that's the way I am. You got to go out and live it. You got to be it. You got to interact and you got to, you got to develop those relationships. And to me, I think that's when things start to kind of make a bit more sense to you. I just, uh, the, the title for this episode just popped into my head, uh, living bravely. I think that's what I'll call this episode. Yeah. I think, I think that is that to me, that is a, Brilliant, like brave. And what does bravery mean, right? Well, what's to me, bravery is living mentally brave. (laughs) Bravery is the acknowledgement. Like it's it's the same thing as resilience. So resilience is a word that's thrown around a lot. You know, when you you go into a workplace and they're going, we're doing a resilience program so we can make our teams work 70 hours a week. That's not resilience. That's madness. Resilience is the ability to come back from adversity and find your way back. Mm. You guys sometimes call it psychological flexibility. Yeah. But to me, Bravery is is back to that place that's never been wounded. 
bravery is, is just that acknowledgement that there's something in you that no matter how dark or difficult things get or how intense life can feel sometimes, there is a part of you that no one's ever got to and no one's ever wounded. And I think that, keeping that in the back of your head brings this level of bravery out. And yeah, I think bravery, just getting out of bed and working in a world that feels very overwhelming right now is a brave thing to do. It's fairly chaotic. You know, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living, it's the Bible for Western mindfulness. Why did he call it Full Catastrophe Living? Because life is tough sometimes. I think bravery for me is acknowledging that just some days, some days you light the world on fire, you'll do something spectacular. Some days you'll literally sit in your arse and you'll do nothing. That's it. That's grand. That's life. Some days you'll just do enough to get through it. Some days you'll feel, yeah, I'm good today. And some weeks you'll feel that. And I think it's that transitory idea of life. It's not just brave. It's, it's the truth. And I worry that often when I'm getting lectured by somebody in the wellness industry telling me that these are things you shouldn't experience, I'm going, no, 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 no. I've done that. And I've done that silent thing for long enough. And I'm a very positive, mm. optimistic person. But I'm actually okay with feeling a little ropey. It actually suits me sometimes. And I think <laughs> this is the, the message I'm trying to get across to people. And I struggle with the conflict that I see all the time about every single thing. The reason conflict is so pervasive is because none of us are actually engaging anymore. We're not having civil debates. If you looked out your window right now and Twitter was real life, there would be houses on fire, there'd be lads screaming at lampposts, there would be, you know, it's not real. It's not a good judgment of our metric to judge humanity. It isn't. Women screaming at the lads. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing. That's what you'd see. It's, it's just this... I have this analogy that I use that some people kind of go, it's, it's a little bit hyperbolic, but it's like, I think social media started with very positive intentions. I remember tweeting, I actually deleted my Twitter uh, six months ago, a few months ago anyway, but I tweeted, remember when Twitter was when we just used to say goodnight to each other and then Jack Dorsey mm -hmm. went goodnight to me and I was like, you see, you know that, like potentially that's what you started this as. But we have to, you, they, the fact that they're still arguing that that's what it is, is just completely intellectually dishonest at the highest level. And it's utterly, utterly disrespectful to the people that use it because they know that's not what it is. So the analogy I use is what social media has become is where we are ripping each other limb from limb in a coliseum and the owners mm. of the social media are up there watching it for our, their entertainment. That's what it's become. And I'm sad it's become that because I had so much potential to be something very special. And what I'm starting to learn is I have uh, part of my study. I talk about the post-digital revolution. I genuinely believe there's going to be a mass kind of. In, I think there is going to be kind of a, a mass amount of people just rejecting social media and not technology because you couldn't exist without it but how we communicate with technology. I think there's going to be a huge movement in the next 10 years where people just go, nope, can't do it anymore. And it might start in some countries or some communities. I know there's some communities in America where you cannot use, there's no kind of access to technology. I think that's a little bit difficult, but I do believe that 
that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to, we're past tipping point as Malcolm Gladwell calls it. We're, we're long past the tipping point of social media because democracy is hanging by a thread and social media is standing there with the scissors. And these are the things we got to think about. And we need to protect ourselves in this. And the way I believe we do that is to build stronger communities. I love that community actualization. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really have made it clear. You have a fundamental belief in human beings and that you want to empower people to find within them and maybe around them would already exist, but maybe they're overlooking. Is that a, a fair summation? Yeah, it is. And also, I think a fair thing to say is, is finding a way to, without sounding like <laughs> it's okay to go within yourself. And actually, mm. you know, I think when the modern world become, or the external world becomes too overwhelming for you, you need to try and find a safe space within yourself. And I think the best thing to teach that I teach in People ask me, what's the definition of mindfulness? The definition, the psychological definition is paying attention to the present moment non-judgmentally. And it doesn't really mean a lot sometimes when you say that to somebody, but when you actually tell them about the profoundness of that, what happens? And to me, the biggest, most important phrase in that is non-judgment. Everything we do in our life, professionally, socially and personally, revolves around judgment. Everything. There has to be a space in your life where literally nothing is expected of you, where the shackles of expectation are just gone, where this shadow of judgment is gone. And that to me is the biggest challenge with mindfulness, because you'll sit to meditate, you'll sit there for a minute, you'll put on some nice music, and then within 10 seconds, you're like, oh God, I forgot to ring Mary. Oh God, Mary already hates me. Oh, will I get a pizza later? I'm eating so much crap. Many calories in a pizza. I go to the gym before or after work. Now, now you're down a rabbit hole and you're anxious. And then you go, oh God, I knew I'd be terrible at this. What I'm asking you to do is recognize that minds drift. That's what they do. They love adventures. They're only doing their job. Don't follow them. See what it feels like not to follow them. And also don't, don't beat yourself up with this. This cannot become another stick to beat yourself with. Everything else mm. is that. This is your space. Nobody else's. And slowly work with that and build that space out and then you create this panoramic internal space where you actually feel like the most spacious place in the world is within yourself and that's when things become very powerful with mindfulness and you start to control your self-awareness and to me ultimately what mindfulness teaches you is self-awareness which is a superpower in a world that feels utterly vacant of it yeah, and self-awareness and also the power of just being, um, and, and which is something you talk about. And by the way, I loved your video with like, you're like, how often do we appreciate a good hearty belly belly laugh? Yeah. That's it. Like, <laughs> I love that. And like, I, I think some, like my, ther my therapist called right it vitamin P, yeah. vitamin playfulness. Yeah. And I think the world has got so intense that some of us feel guilty sometimes to have fun <laughs> or to laugh. I know. Or worry I that know. somebody's filming us doing it. And yeah, I, I think so, I'm the worst at it sometimes, you know, when you're studying, when you spend your days studying Irish institutionalization in psychiatric hospitals for 200 years and you come out of that your little study room, you're like, oh, my God, I need I need to watch Shit's Creek or Young Sheldon. I need to not anybody just just I need to be stupid. I need to do something spontaneous. I, I need to do something for no reason. That's the other thing is like. 
everything we do has to be for a reason now. And so uh-huh. I like the idea of just going, why, why? Like, I'm going to go I and agree. like jump in the sea to, and people are like, why? It's like, why not? You know, it's just, it's, that's back to this. And I know I keep bringing it up, but this world where we all now feel everything's transactional, our friendships, what's in this for me? That's not, that's not happiness. To me, there's a, a connection in happiness. There's a feeling in a room where you can be with somebody and you don't need to speak to them and feel uncomfortable. There is a feeling that, you know, what, what's it? Neuroscientists call it mirror neurons, where it feels like our brains are always talking to each other. And I learned this. Like, I started to learn the energy you can bring into a room. You can actually bring an energy into a room. You can actually dictate the other energies in the room by what you show up with. Whether that's vulnerability or whether that's excitement, whatever it is, it's very powerful to be able to just go, right, I'm going to walk into this room. I'm in a band and sometimes we go in and the last thing you want to do is rehearse. Like, it's just like, oh, God, Mm. don't rehearse. And if you show up like that, it's just like four of us going, oh, my God, this is what, how do we get through this? How long is this going to be? It's so loud. But if you walk in and go, right, lads, let's nail this. Let's, you know, looking forward to this. Can't wait for the gig of the weekend. And you mean it. It's a, it's an, it's an energy. It, you create that in a room, and I just think this is something I, I, I've, I've, I feel like part of me is disappointed that I've missed this for fifteen years, mm. and part mm. of me actually realizes I wouldn't be able to think like this if I didn't go through what I went through. I wouldn't have this clarity. And anyone listening to this, I need to be really clear. I don't have all this shit figured out. I'm not speaking from a place of hierarchy. I am literally speaking with you. I'm down in the weeds some days. I am having the time of my life other days. I've utterly changed the labels I put on myself. And people will say, do you still struggle with your mental health? No, but I still have really bad days. I really have difficult days. I I don't struggle with them anymore because I accept them. And there's even that language changes how you relate to it it's beautiful well i really um i I urge people to check out your podcast you you call mindfulness you've called it the chill skill right i call that for kids so i had to i kind of i I, I work a lot with kids and i work with you know we've done programs with kids with sensory issues and stuff and you have to meet the murder out here you know (laughs) trying to tell an anxious child to breathe is pointless but giving them something, giving them a visualization, giving them a physical cue to do it and actually make them relate to it in a different way. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever watch. Just watching kids realize that. Because kids' default setting, their very default setting is to be mindful. Mm. And they're, they're losing that too quickly, too early. And they're meant to be curious to the world. They're meant to navigate and adventures. And they're meant to just, that's what they're meant to do. And unfortunately, a lot of kids are kind of accelerating past that. So that to me is saying to kids, what's it like to be just bored? What does it feel like to be anxious? Be curious. I say to a kid, where do you feel it? And they're like, oh, what do you mean? I, said, I, I feel it. In my, I always feel it in my throat. My throat gets a bit sore when I get anxious. Mm. Oh, I feel it in my belly. And now you're just relating with them. And now what you're doing is you're validating their emotion and you're saying that, oh, oh yeah, I get them too. Jeez, yeah, geez, they're not nice, but we all get them. And all of a sudden you're, you're, you're speaking to a child, like a child, like you're a child. And our school, my charity, Lust for Life, we set up 
purely as an education, mental health, youth mental health advocacy charity, we are now in 50% of Irish primary schools. We were, we will be on the curriculum by 2024 and in every Irish school by 2024, end of 2024. That's how you solve problems. Early intervention. I believe it with every cell in my body. My entire study is revolving around if mental health intervention to this point has been so ineffective because let's face it, we've relied generally purely on a medical model that numbs the pain. How about we look at ways of creating really strong early intervention programs in the community and in schools? What does that look like? What will that do? How will that impact young people? And that to me is how you change things. You don't change things throwing stones at them. You just don't. And I think that is, I, I was in America recently. I was in the West Coast. I went to some of the schools. I looked at how the education system works there. It's a really great education system. But unfortunately, it, it, it puts huge emphasis on, on results. Not enough emphasis on hum, being a human being. Everything is mm. kind of driven around success. Every parent I met introduced me to their child by the grades they get in school. I don't like, I don't think that is the right way to bring the education system. I think it's really important that we have grades and we, we drive, but there has to be more to this. Education has to be more about just grades. It has to be building a well-balanced, under kind of empathetic, emotionally intelligent young people. And then we see change. So yeah, that's kind of, where my heart is now is is in early intervention models of care and psychosocial interventions, working with the brilliant psychologists and the educational psychologists and the incredible people I work with to design mm. stuff that actually works so we don't keep relying on a crisis model because that's all we're doing here in Ireland and we have a population of 5 million people. If we can't get it right mm. here, you know what I mean? And, and Ireland has yeah. a hugely strong international reputation. If we can prove we can make this work here and we can really make it kind of a framework, why can't we start looking at other, other countries? And unfortunately in America, you know, you've kids more worried about going to school than what they learn there. And somewhere along the line, people are going to realize that's the real madness, you know, and to me, I, I think we can do better, but I think it's going to take back to the bravery. It's going to take brave leadership, brave communities and brave individuals to do it. Yes, yes. Look, Bressy, if I may call you that. Tell me whatever you want. <laughs> uh, yeah. Are you still performing? That's, yeah, that's yeah. Your performer, we still, performing we still game, play. Right? We yeah. still, yeah. I do anything that makes me happy. So I, I golf, Amazing. I play music, I, I kayak, I study, I do whatever comes my way and, and I'm very <laughs> privileged to be able to do it. That's awesome. And yeah, and you have this uh, podcast, Where Is My Mind? Mm -hmm. That is. <laughs> the, 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 I can't get that song out of my head now that uh, I, I used watched to that play video. that. I played that yeah. at one of our graduation things in school wow. years ago. And it was like the, the wow. Christian brothers thought it was like, that's devil music. But then, um, no, I think that particular oh. track has a sound or a tone or an energy in it that kind yes. of really represented the melancholy and the sometimes hilarity of my mind. And I think that's what I love about that song. It, it's, it's, it's not, it's not sad. It's just strange. And that was me. Yeah. Well, I loved this episode and I, I, I do think it'll be really powerful for a lot of people. 
uh, I feel real privileged that you came on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.